Hello and welcome to Owl Pellets, Tips for Ag Teachers podcast. Our goal at Owl Pellets is to help agriculture teachers like you find research-based solutions to the problems you face every day in the high school classroom and as you advise your FFA chapter. Here you will find practical tips for your agricultural classroom and interesting information to incorporate into your teaching. We invite the best agricultural education faculty and researchers from around the country to come and talk with us and share what they have learned. The Owl Pellets crew is Kate Shoulders from the University of Arkansas, Marshall Baker from Oklahoma State University, and me, Brian Myers from the University of Florida. For more information on Owl Pellets, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our webpage at owlpelletsforag.wordpress.com. That's owlpelletsforag, all one word, .wordpress.com. All right. Hey, Wow Pellets. We are here today with Dr. Christopher Stripling from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Christopher, welcome to Owl Pellets. Thank you so much. So as we get started today, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do there in Tennessee, and about what we're going to be talking about today. Okay. I'm uh, originally from Georgia, but I did my PhD at the University of Florida. And then I took this position here at the University of Tennessee almost six years ago now and I work with our uh, pre-service teachers here, and I'm also involved on four USDA projects working on faculty development. Cool. So how have you reconciled your SEC loyalties with Georgia, Tennessee, and Florida all together? Well, once you go from Georgia to Florida, you can do anything. (laughs) (laughs) So what are we gonna be talking about today? Dr. Stripling, tell us a little bit about your study and and what some of the key ideas are for our ag teachers out there. Okay, so this study, it came about from one of our graduate students, and it was was actually their thesis. And they had seen some inconsistencies in advisory councils across our state. And so they wanted to know um, what was the scope of advisory councils in Tennessee. And so from this, we, we, we looked at what the scope was, and I think we have some interesting things that we can talk about today related to advisory councils. Very cool. So we're going to have true confession here first. All four of us were former high school agriculture teachers. How many of us had an advisory committee at the school we taught at? I, mm, Kate. How many of us... Oh, guys, just pick on Kate, babe. <laughs> how many of us had a... Uh, oh, for those who are on the video, Kate was the other one that didn't raise her hand. Kate did not raise her hand, nation. <laughs> there you go. For all you ag teachers that do not have an advisory council, you too can end up with a group of friends like this. <laughs> How many of us found our advisory councils to be helpful? I will do that. They were, they were key to me. Marshall's hands up. Dr. Stripling's hand is not going up. Not going up. So, you know, this is one of those things we talk a lot about with our students. I don't know about you guys, but talking about advisory councils and alumni. A lot of people get them confused. So I'm excited to talk about, Christopher, what did you guys find about advisory councils that can help our teachers? Because I will say my bias up front. I think a well-designed and well-operated advisory council can be extremely helpful to an ag teacher. They saved my bacon a couple times when I was teaching high school. So, oh, Wait, can we back up a second, though? Because you asked a question there. I did? Yeah, I thought I heard one. Um, and I'd like to hear Dr. Stripling's answer. 
So what is the difference between an advisory council and an alumni, and do you need both? Yeah, so in this study, we looked at more of advisory council from the standpoint of the total program, which typically our alumni are focused more on one component, like FFA side of it. And so this is really a advisory council for the total program and not just your FFA chapter. Excellent. And I, I think it's important to, to separate those two because I think people that run into trouble are using one group to do everything and that, that runs into some problems, but cool. So what, what's some of the key things you guys found about that ag teachers or ag teachers out there can, can start using as they start either um, continuing to run or maybe establish their advisory councils in there? What did you guys find out was useful? Well, you, you asked about, did I think that my advisory council was beneficial? And I did not raise my hand and say yes, and partly because I just didn't know how to use them. And so in this study, we also found that ag teachers really didn't know how to use an advisory council. And so um, like we tend to do, or I know I do, we, they were tending to try to do all the work. So do everything from uh, organize the meetings, um, run the meetings. Um, they, they didn't allow the members on the advisory council to have any ownership in the group. And so we tend, we tend to have a, we want to do it all as ag teachers, right? So I think we want, we want to, we want to, it's hard for us to let go. Precisely why I did not have an advisory council. I'll say, you all know me, I kind of have a thing with control and I did not have an advisory council because I, was not at a point where I wanted to relinquish much of that or figure out how to balance it. Yeah, and the surprising, one of the other surprising things was they wanted their advisory councils to have more influence. And so Kate and I probably didn't want that influence, but this group, they wanted the advisory council to have more influence on things like um, identifying facility needs, um, assisting with uh, program activities, even input on who should be hired in that program. And so that was really surprising to me to see that the, this group of teachers wanted their advisory council to have more influence than they had. Which I think is probably a strength, right? Like I'm not, I'm not gonna say that not wanting that input was a strength of mine. I think our program could have been strengthened from it, but it takes a lot to get over that. I mean, when you said that they want input in who gets hired, I can see that turning into a huge mess that I don't want to I don't want to deal with yeah but I you know we don't I don't know the reason behind that but we didn't ask that but you know it's probably they think their advisory council if you have a good advisory council probably has your interest in mind more than someone else making that decision or that would have influence on that decision so I would say you know as we look at kind of this the context of advisory councils what would you say from this study? So for those that are listening here, driving in or whatever they're, you know, during their lunch break, what would be the, 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 the most poignant tips, like the, the most important things for us to know about this study as you help ag teachers? Well, so if we look at the composition, because we were looking at the scope of this. And so um, a majority of these teachers had advisory councils, but the structure of them were not very well defined. So they did not have officers. And so that leads to them doing all the work. Um, they didn't have, they did not have written goals or objectives of the committee. And so that may be influenced why they were not as 
influential as they wanted them to be. Um, and they were not approved in any way by the school administrators or the school board. And so if you really want to use this group to have influence in these areas that they said they did, um, I think that's three things we can do is just we need to let go a little bit, establish officers, have written objectives, and you know, have this activity supported by our local administrations. So I've got a question with that. Did you find anything, or if, if this was not part of your study, I'd like to hear your personal views on whether or not, I mean, some communities are really small, and if you've got the really influential people that know about your ag program, they may also be on the school board, but is that too much power for one person to have? To be on both? Yeah. Um, I don't believe so. I mean, it gives insight into your program, you know, if they're a school board member and on your advisory council. Um, a lot of the respondents, the, the typical people on these advisory councils were industry representatives and some of them had some school administration, most of the CTE director at the time. There were very few that had school board members or principals. They're mostly CTE directors. Well, and I might jump in there too. Um, I'm on our school board. And I think one of the challenges with advisory um, boards is if, for me, my advisory board was the group that provided um, kind of a strong voice for the program. So if something was happening or if funding decisions were being made, I had a group of people that would go to the school board and make public comments and advocate on behalf of our program without me as a teacher having to go uh, make a, you know, kind of an argument to the people that hire and fire me. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would caution people to be on a, a school board and an advisory council because, you know, you're having to vote on funding decisions and on staffing decisions. And so it would be hard I think as a board member to be unbiased, but it would also be hard as an advisory council member to really stand up and fight and to um, advocate for your program if you were also a voting member. So I think that would be tricky, which is probably why there's not a lot of double dipping there. So in our case, it was just the opposite of what you guys are talking about, and we found it to be successful. We actually had a seat on our advisory council that the school board appointed a school board member to serve on. Wow. So we went to them and they said, y'all pick one. And, and they knew that they had to be careful with what they said and, and, and they, couldn't, they couldn't advocate there, but they were there to keep open communication for what's happening. And it didn't take up one of the seats from an industry person, but they were there to kind of help the, the rest of the advisory council stay in check so they couldn't go too far off the rails. So the school board member could kind of say, yeah, that would be great y'all, but here's kind of the reality of how the school system works or here's what's going on. And so it, it, they really, they honestly were advising the, the, the department, but they're also act as an advisor in a way to the rest of the advisory council on, on what they can and can't do. So, but with that, you're saying that the, you had full district support and the school board knew of the advisory council. The school board actually approved them. So we would, we would submit the names we wanted and it would go on the school board consent agenda. They never, they didn't care. They put on, they put on the school board consent agenda and they would, they would approve them and they became an official committee of the school. Um, so, so Dr. Stripling, did you see anything or, or ask any of those questions as far as like, because I'm thinking, 
if I'm a teacher and I'm like, you know, maybe I should start one of these. Um, I don't know if going to the school board would be on my list of things I would know would be a good idea to do. Yeah, and that's what um, earlier I was talking about. That was one of the things that most of these were not approved. And so that's probably why they didn't have that influence. And so if they were approved um, uh, by the school board administration, then they make it have more influence on your total program. So step one, if we're thinking of doing one, get school board, run that by the school board and see if you can get them to be stakeholders in the process. I would think so. If you want it to be truly effective in uh, guiding your program. Well, and it seems that, that that would set you up for an advisory council. You know, it seems like what this study is saying is, you know, what, are, what is some clarity on exactly how to get this rolling? I think a lot of times an advisory council can become this adversarial group that forms because we have an issue, they're gonna cut our funding and we're gonna go with pitchforks and fight. And I think if you start it by reacting to some kind of issue, you start off on the wrong foot. But I think with Brian's take, if you start by going to the board and saying, let's establish the structure so we have good community feedback, and that is established before there's any type of issue, then you can celebrate when there's great things that are great and you can push back when there's things you need to push back on without it being reactionary, you know, like the pitchfork um, approach. Yeah, I think that goes back to just the organization of it that I was talking about earlier. If you, if you do those things, if you establish officers, if you have roles, if you have objectives, you know, it doesn't become that type of activity. I'm curious, in Tennessee, what percentage of your chapters had advisory councils? Is that, is that a finding? Well, we, we tried to survey programs and not individual teachers. And we, I don't remember, it was a 40-something percent response rate. Um, and so of those, about 76.5% had advisory councils. Um, and so, but it could have been that the ones who responded were the ones that had advisory councils. Right. And so um, um, we don't really know, but that, that is still a good number. That's, that's at, at least, least a, that's like a quarter of your state, right? That's at least a third. Well, I think it's important there too, though, with nomenclature, you know, Marshall said how many chapters had advisory councils, but then Christopher said how many programs. And there, I think there is a difference. I think, and we were very, I think it's very important and be interested in what you guys, what you found, Christopher, was showing that the advisory council is there to advise the school-based agricultural education program, curriculum, facilities, all this kind of stuff. And then, and the alumni, the FFA alumni and whatever they call themselves now, they just changed their name. Um, they're the ones that are out there to raise money for and focus on the FFA and the FFA alumni is not supposed to be coming in and saying this is what you need to be teaching in your classes and this kind of stuff and maybe some of the same people on there but I think where things get in trouble is when those those lines get blurred to do that so Marshall he totally called you out on that you gonna allow that well I think it's a great point actually I don't know if it's <laughs> calling anybody out, but I do think that there are two different types of advisory boards. And I think a lot of times advisory councils end up being attached to the FFA activities, which is a chapter event. And I, and I mean, I see a lot of advisory councils that are all around the FFA activities and the show program. And, um, 
you know, a lot of times parents will really get engaged and they don't realize it, but they're really getting engaged in, in sharing their opinion of the chapter. So I think it is an important designation for teachers to think about. Um, I didn't do a great job of this as a teacher. I thought about, you know, parents, tell me what you're needing out of our chapter rather than our program, you know? And I think having people involved in what your curriculum is and is it authentically relevant to where you work and live, I think it's a really good point. So you ain't starting no fight between us, Kate. I, I thought I was so close. I wanted to see how that was going to play out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, pull, I'll pull it, boys, unite. Yeah, yeah, here we go. Jeez. <laughs> we need another We need another lady teammate on here. <laughs> um, I am curious. Go ahead, Kate. No, go ahead, Strip. I was like going back to the number and the relevance thing where Kate and I probably did not use our, well, she didn't have one. I did not use mine effectively. Um, you know, in some of our total program quality standards, it says you must have an advisory council. So if you look at the 12 month quality standards for Tennessee, it said that in my state in Georgia, that was one of our little check marks was, was we had one of those. And so, uh, sometimes, you know, we may say we have one, but we're really not doing anything to make it effective. So, Go ahead, Kate. Thank you. So I'm thinking if I had one, how would I go ahead and get started, right? And how do you, how do you begin to get that buy-in and at the same time begin to relinquish a little bit of that power? And as Marshall and Brian were saying, make sure that they're not just focusing on the chapter. And as I keep hearing you all talk about these different ideas, it seems like the National Quality Program Standards and their online system would be a great opportunity to, to do kind of a first activity with your with your advisory council um, because that that allows them to as a group or individually talk about each aspect of the program and where their efforts maybe need to focus so I don't know has anybody worked with that I worked I use it with student teachers um, but has anyone seen an advisory council successfully navigate through the national quality program standards crickets yep yeah. Well, I would be real curious if anyone's listening um, and they haven't done that and want to, I would love to um, chat with you about it. Or if there's anyone that has done it, put a comment when you're listening to this under the podcast. I'm, I re I'm really curious to see how that process goes. Christopher, in, in your all's work, did you guys, you talk about different kind of structures. Did, what, what kind of, did you talk about what structures that they had, what, what they found to be successful? You mentioned officers. What about rotations of members, that sort of thing? Yes, and so we asked about, you know, um, were the members appointed, were they not appointed, were they uh, elected, you know, all those type of questions. It was all over the board. And um, even if there were term limits, like what you said. Mm -hmm. And so going back to Kate's question about what should you do, if we best practice established that, all right, we need to have this thing approved to make impact. After that, you just got to start the organization of it. Just decide that with your school board or administrators, you know, how do we want to choose these people? Are we going to appoint them, elect them? How long can they stay? Is it a lifetime appointment? You know, all those type of things. So it really just goes back to the organization and the goals that you need to set. And that's what we found is really, that's what was lacking. Yeah. There was no approval, there were no goals, and there were no guiding documents to really um, organize the 
activities that they should be doing? That would be interesting to learn a little bit more because I think one of the, the things that I found was you needed to have a term that you wanted people to serve on the advisory committee because you wanted some of the big heavy hitters in the community and they did not want to be sucked into a lifetime appointment. Um, right. And so I found that to be pretty important. And so it sounds like that was part of the issue too, that a variety of structure, but you needed to have some sort of structure um, to be followed to actually be, be impactful. Because I, I think that's again, the problem when people combine the advisory council with their alumni, as Marshall pointed out earlier, people join the alumni for a very different reason than why they would have joined an advisory council. And I think it's, it's, it's important to do that uh, differently. Did, did you talk to about how often they, they met or how, what they did in their meetings and that sort of thing? Yes. And that was, all over the board once again they may have met one time a year or they met monthly oh wow and so did you ask whether they were satisfied with their advisory councils whether they felt they were operating well we we asked their about their current level influence and the influence they wanted their advisory council to have on several different items and what surprised me was probably because of my experience of not using them well was how much more influence they wanted their advisory councils and so um we didn't really ask about satisfaction but we also asked about professional development and um for almost 83 percent said they needed professional development in this topic and so um i think a lot of them probably feel like we do they've had varied experiences and they just didn't don't really know what to do when you were teaching to, to establish a good quality advisory council or even the purpose of the advisory sure. council well, I think that's really important um, for us to be thinking about. And, you know, again, all of us had different experiences, even in this small group. I mean, I had a great experience. I found them to be very helpful. They helped change the curriculum of our focus of our program when we were teaching and were, were very useful and helpful to do that. Other people I know, and it'd be interesting, those that said they met monthly, I wonder if that's the combined advisory alumni kind of a thing, because I'm not sure an advisory counts. If you're true advisory, why you would need to meet more than maybe 12 twice a year so right we were we were pretty explicit about this is not an advisory council this is how you define it and so but this is not an alumni right 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 this is not an alumni this is what an advisory council is and it's not these things like alumni organizer i mean to raise money do all those type of things help me with fa activities that stuff truly well, an advisory council yeah this has been a great conversation, Christopher, as, as we kind of, to wrap this kind of thing up, we know we, we have talked all the way around this thing. There, there are as many views on advisory councils as there are ag teachers and retired ag teachers out there. Um, what's, what would be one final take home message you would have for the ag teachers listening to this, either to make their advisory council more effective or if they're going to start one, what, what, what's kind of the big take home for all this? One thing I would say, if we didn't talk about this, but if you're in a county or a system with multiple schools, maybe you don't need one for every school. Maybe you should um, consider developing an advisory council for your system instead of the schools. And so I would, I would take that into consideration first. Um, and then I would just start talking to our administrators and uh, school board members about what's the proper way to establish one of these. Um, because you need to do that to have the influence and then start thinking about all the things that this group said they did not really have outlined very well. Goals, terms, um, who's going to make up the composition of the advisory councils. And so just laying the structure, I think, 
will do that. And so just, and don't be scared to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the big things. This, this group was taking it all on for themselves to do it, whether it was being running the meetings, setting the agendas, all that type of stuff. They didn't ask for help. And so I think sometimes we forget to ask for help. Yep. Well, and I would just jump in as we conclude and say a little, uh, a little Oklahoma representation here. Um, we have a guide. Oklahoma Career Tech has a guide. And if you're looking for resources, teachers, if you're looking for resources, um, Oklahoma Career Tech, if you just um, were to Google advisory committees, um, they have an advisory committee 101 guide. And maybe your state does too, so look that up. But I was just looking through this advisory guide and it says, what's the definition? What is the purpose? Here's the responsibilities. Here are um, an example of bylaws that the committee could, could adopt. Here's what a meeting would look like, an agenda. This is a letter that the committee chairman could fill out. It's every resource you would need really to start to look at some of that structure. So feel free to steal that no matter what state you're from or go, just look up your own state's um, advisory council guidelines because I'm guessing they exist. And I'm going to put out there that I'm pretty sure based on when teachers when you guys are listening to this if you look at yesterday's infographic you're going to see the findings from Dr. Stripling's study so that is he's saying make sure that you're um, that you're learning from the findings of the study we've got that infographic already there you can look that up on all of our pages that will have been posted yesterday and tomorrow, I'm sure the resource roundup will include the link to the um, Advisory Council 101 that Marshall is talking about. Yeah. yeah. I just downloaded the file so I could send it your way. Phenomenal. Dr. Christopher Stripling, thank you so much for coming and playing with us today in Owl Pilot Land. Um, this is a great, a great thing. Ag teachers, I encourage you to look at advisory councils with fresh eyes. I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of people out there that have very strong opinions. The big thing here is, you know, you, you can't, running an ag program is too big to do alone, especially if you're in a one teacher program. Use the resources in the community, but be intentional about how you use those and the structure and the guides that we've been talking about are great. The findings from the study and the resources are gonna be, I think, invaluable to you as you take a look at this kind of thing because I hate to break it to you teachers, but you're mortal like the rest of us. And there's 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week. And you got to spread out the load a little bit to, to make those things happen, not only for your own sanity, but that's going to how you're going to make that program the best for your students um, and your community. So for Kate and Marshall, we thank Dr. Christopher Stripley for being with today. This is Brian from Owl Pellet Land. We're out. Hello, Owl Pellet family. This is Marshall Baker at Oklahoma State University. I'm going to take just a short minute to share with you a little bit about our Department of Agricultural Education, Communications, and Leadership at Oklahoma State. The Department of Agricultural Education, Communications, and Leadership develops students into well-rounded agricultural professionals. Whether they want to pursue a career as an agricultural education teacher, which we would love, magazine editor, public relations specialist, sales and marketing associate, extension educator, no matter what that job is, our department can help students achieve their goals. Our faculty and staff work closely with students inside and outside of the classroom to create a family atmosphere and help students feel that this is a place they can call home. Our department offers advisors that are also faculty members. They spend unique one-on-one time advising each student, 
We teach courses, and we're involved professionally in the areas that the students are studying. These faculty advisors, I being one of them, assist in planning individual programs for every student that walks through our door. We pride ourselves in our open door policy. We love to invite students to stop by our office, talk about their life, talk about the decision to teach ag, and their academic pursuits here at OSU. You know, it doesn't hurt that Oklahoma State's also nestled in a wonderful town, Stillwater, Oklahoma. We find it very easy to continue to stay strong and stay rooted in agriculture, one of the primary industries in our state. If students are looking for an experience in an undergraduate program, we hope you would consider Oklahoma State University for that option. You can look at our department by going to www.aged.okstate.com. We'd love to have you on campus. Please contact any of us and we can make that happen. I appreciate you tuning into the podcast and go Pokes! I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Owl Pellets. Please visit our webpage for more information on this topic and to learn more about all of our guests. Be sure to follow Owl Pellets on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It would also be great for you to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Also, we ask that you please take a moment and comment on our podcast so others can find it as well. So for Kate and Marshall, this is Brian here by the Owl Pellet saying thanks and we look forward to seeing you again on another episode of Owl Pellets, Tips for Ag Teachers.